As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Matt Goldman. And I'm Joelle Steiniger. Today we talked with Tom Lung, the co-founder of Poachable. What did you think of this one, Matt? It was awesome to hear about the uh, the path they've taken to get to Poachable. They've pivoted so many times and tried so many different ideas. And what they learned along the way is incredible. Yeah, I love the story about how they were really hours away from selling the company and were able to close a whole new round to pursue the idea of Poachable. Um, I haven't heard anything like that in the past. It was really great. So let's get into it. We're so happy to have Customer.io supporting the show again. We use Customer.io for Hookfeed and we absolutely love the power it gives us. Customer.io is a data-driven email platform that helps you communicate better with your customers. The kicker is that their powerful rules-based targeting enables you to keep your messages human even as you automate them and scale. Go to customer.io slash rocketship to start sending emails that convert. So Tom, tell us about Poachable. We are a talent marketplace and what makes us kind of special is that we're very focused on protecting the uh, member's identity So not only do we block your current employer from seeing that you're on Poachable, we actually don't even show your profile to any company that you haven't already approved uh, and given us permission to reveal your anonymous profile to. And even then, when we show your anonymous profile to them, they have to indicate interest in seeing more, and then you have to give the final permission to reveal yourself. So we, we kind of think of, our, of ourselves as one of the, the safest ways to kind of explore potential uh, alternative jobs while you're in your current job. And uh, the other thing we do is we collect this very long kind of make-me-move list so you can tell us exactly 
what it would take for you to consider a new opportunity. And it's not just salary, but it might be title or seniority or location or size of company, uh, dozens of different criteria. So then we only bug you when we have something where uh, it meets your criteria and your background meets the, the company's criteria. So we have a high confidence that, uh, that, that it's a good match. And then, uh, and then we do that extra protection for you on uh, making sure no one knows that you're, you're keeping an open mind. And you guys have uh, a data layer in there too, right? Where you can kind of learn what salary maybe you can be making. Yeah, so one of the great things about our platform is we collect a lot of data uh, from almost 50,000 members right now. And we know not only their current salary, but also their minimum acceptable salary. And then uh, we have this uh, feature called Member Insights, where you can see how other people uh, from similar job functions and seniority, how much they're earning, how much they're willing to take, where they want to work, where they, uh, what locations they're open to, what skills are the most popular. So um, our core business is helping you find great career kind of opportunities uh, while you're in a, in a job. But what we found is that a lot of the data that we have is also really valuable, not only to members, but to companies that are recruiting, uh, because when we can share with them how they stack up to their competitors in terms of attracting talent and why people aren't interested in working for them. So yeah, the data that, that we kind of collect through the matchmaking process um, uh, allows us to do a lot of really fun things. And the companies that are looking for these candidates, do they have to... You know, sign up for Poachable ahead of time, or are you going out and finding offers and and putting together a profile of of how it stacks up against their you know make me move list? Yeah, you know, we started out by just sort of crawling the web and finding jobs out there, but then we found that in order for our matchmaking process to really work well, you you kind of need an active and willing participant on the employer side because we have that multi-step kind of progressive reveal process. And so now we only promote jobs that are with companies that uh, are on the Poachable platform. And luckily there's now over 1,500 recruiters on on Poachable. So we have quite a nice selection of jobs and um, the other benefit, of course, is that most of our members aren't like really anxious to change jobs tomorrow. They're just kind of looking to um, see what's out there if there's a perfect match. Um, and so that's why we, we kind of have a curated list of both members, but also of employers as well. And how are you guys making money? Uh, so it's free for members, but we charge the companies uh, uh, for the introductions. And you know, going back a, a few steps to before uh, you started Poachable, you were doing something else. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. We started in early 2012 as Yably, and that was a uh, social commerce startup. Uh, it was a Quora for product research. So it was this Q&A platform where uh, a community of people could help each other make uh, better product purchasing decisions through this interactive Q&A format. And the idea was, well, it's better than a, a static product review on Amazon because you can actually get 
suggestions and recommendations based on ver- your very specific situation, your specific budget, your specific use cases, your preferences, all those kinds of things. And uh, it was one of those ideas that you wish it failed a lot faster. And, uh, you know, maybe in hindsight, we kind of were reluctant to see the writing on the wall, but we ended up spending two years on on Yabli and, you know, raised a, a million and a half in, in seed capital and uh, just had enough false positives to keep going until finally, uh, towards the early part of 2014, we said, you know, this is probably not the business that we thought we were going to build. It's time to consider soft landing the company. And uh, that's when we sort of explored a number of pivots as well as uh, uh, acquisition options. So can you talk about some of those false positives? Um, And were you kind of aware at the time or did you have an inkling or were you really kind of fooled by these things? You know, it's... um, So I'll give you a bunch of examples. Uh, We were selected as a finalist at the South by Southwest Accelerator. And I think the year we applied, uh, I think there was probably like 500 startups from all across the country that had applied. And we were one of the six that were invited to come down to Austin and present in the uh, social category. And in 2000, this was in... um, early 2013. And, uh, you know, that was kind of, we thought that was a big deal. You know, we got a lot of press coverage from it. And it turns out that that was not, uh, that was a false positive. That was not a real signal there. Uh, Another example would be, you know, we had a five-star app in the uh, in the app store that was app store that was the number one, two or three, depending on when you looked for the search uh, product reviews. We also ended up on page one for Google results for product reviews and we had a uh, partnership with Consumer Reports. Uh, so those are all, and we had some great investors, you know, including like a former general counsel of Facebook and, you know, we just, we had a lot of, a lot of good things that happened over that period. But at the end of the day, I think one of the lessons I learned was your chart, your longitudinal chart of either revenue or usage is the only signal that really matters, at least in the early stages. And that chart was going up, but it wasn't really kind of uh, hockey sticking. And I think we all kind of kept telling ourselves, well, you know, there's just this critical mass we need to hit. And, you know, we all, or this next new feature, this, this viral feature is going to be great. Or we need a better image, uh, you, you know, support in, in, the, in the mobile experience. And there were just always things that we thought could um, in, move the needle. Um, but ultimately, you know, when you look at the chart now, you're like, yeah, you guys spent two years and you still couldn't get it going. And I think a lot of times we found false comfort in these stories around, well, you know, Pinterest didn't really blow up for, for years and nobody cared about them until all of a sudden. But I think those are kind of more the exception than the rule. I think now 
if you have a great business, um, it generally shouldn't take two years to show um, consecutive uh, material uh, month-over-month growth. And we weren't getting that. We were getting small, you know, a few percentage month-over-month growth, and that's just not enough. Hmm. That's interesting um, because I think you get so attached to your idea that if you see any kind of growth, even if it doesn't seem quick enough, um, plus adding in some of those other positive things, you know, press coverage, it's really hard to consider pivoting. Oh, yeah. I mean, not only are there, like everybody who starts a company is generally pretty persuasive and and pretty bright. And so if, if if you put a smart person in front of a bunch of data with an idea that he likes or she likes, they're going to be able to make a case that there's something here. Uh, one of my first bosses used to say to me, uh, if tortured long enough, the data will always confess. Right? And you can, you can make the data say what you want it to, but ultimately, you know, if, you, if you force yourself to say, look, we need to hit at least 10% month-over-month growth in either users or revenue, and you're not, and you hold yourself to it, and you time box it, and you say, if we're not at this many users or this much revenue by this month, um, then you can kind of protect yourself from being really persuasive and trying to kind of defend your baby. Um, and that, that, but you're right. That's very. It's easier for me to say this than for anybody to do it. And obviously, we. We spent uh, two years kind of uh, convincing ourselves there was something there. And now you look at it and the whole social commerce space is just cratered. I mean, nobody has figured it out. And, uh, but a couple years ago, it was, it, was, uh, it was like messaging. It was a hot thing. Yeah. So you have this incredibly difficult decision to make and you have a runway that's running out. Uh, with only a few months left, you decided to do Poachable. What did it look like at that point? And, you know, in just a few months, I'm sure you had a team and a higher burn. How were you able to get that off the ground and, and see the potential there to keep going? Yeah, we were we were literally um, packing our our boxes when we when we launched Poachable. So by January of 2014, after the Christmas shopping season had had been finished and we had done this this big deal with. Um, Consumer reports. It's just we knew it wasn't. There was just we're running out of things we could try, you know. And so we said, let's let's pivot. And so from shopping Q and A, we then experimented very briefly with uh, kind of like a Pinterest, like a visual wish list idea uh, of products you love that you could follow and share. That didn't really take off at all. And then we tried a white label version. Seems like every B2C company eventually goes and tries a white label version for other businesses. And so we went to all these retailers saying, hey, we have this great Q&A platform for shopping decisions and uh, you should use it. And then we realized that uh, it's a very long sales cycle and um, we weren't solving a big enough pain point for those retailers. And then we tried um, a Q&A tool for um, social planning, social events kind of thing. And then we tried uh, 
an AMA offering. The AMA offering actually did a little bit better. That was sort of like, imagine if Reddit AMAs were, if there were a platform that were built and optimized for the AMA kind of um, interaction. And so that that actually did a little bit better, but it's still uh, we were kind of wisened wisened up by then, and so we gave it like three months, and we weren't seeing the the, the slope that we needed. And so simultaneously, we had uh, entered negotiations with about four or five companies about acquiring the team and the technology, and we ended up uh, going all the way to due diligence and had a definitive agreement. Um, approved by both sides' attorneys. And uh, that was supposed to close on July 25th. And uh, July 4th weekend, we kind of uh, had a had a come to Jesus with the team. And we said, well, I guess we're going to sell the company in this deal. And it was going to be a positive outcome for our investors. So we, we were going to be able to call it a win. Um, but none of us were like really stoked and that was the first time as a team we said, look, we've tried every flavor of Q&A you can think of. What if we said forget Q&A? What if we said we didn't need to pivot? So it doesn't have to have anything to do with what Yavli once was. What would we do? And uh, we had two ideas. One was a, a service to help people sell their used cars uh, in a way that didn't have to be sort of as sketchy as dealing with strangers on Craigslist, but also uh, would get you a better price than the dealership would on your trade. And so that was kind of cool. I mean, a lot of people really liked that idea, but we ended up not pursuing it because we learned very quickly that the car dealers have this tax loophole where they're able to apply the the value of your trade-in to... Uh, uh, reduce your sales tax on the new car, which was basically how they justify underpaying you for your used car. And that was just a legislative advantage they have that you know we couldn't overcome or we didn't think we could overcome. And the other idea was Poachable. And the big sort of insight with Poachable was, you know, we all get these freaking recruiter mails. I mean, I still get them. And they they clearly do not review your information and they're like hey we think this would be a great opportunity for you and if it's not uh and you know someone who is please let us know and you just you got we everybody gets tired of getting those and you wonder like don't do these recruiters even know what i what i'm open to and of course the answer is no because i'm not going to put that on linkedin and tell everybody well, I'm kind of happy at my job at Google, but if you had a VP role that paid me this much in Seattle, uh, I'd be open to it. Like I would, I, nobody wants to broadcast that out, and you, it doesn't make sense. Like you can't train every random recruiter that contacts you. I, I remember many years ago trying to do that, and then realizing, oh, these recruiters, they're not there for me. They're there to fill the three or four roles they're assigned this month, and they don't really care. It's either, are you interested or not, move on, right? And so we said, well, wouldn't it be great if somebody built a platform that was kind of member first, that was, was there for the talent, and that was trustworthy enough that the talent could give the crucial data that was needed to screen out recruiters? And then... On the recruiter side, 
what we could say is, wouldn't it be great if we could show your opportunities to the people that actually care for which your company and your opportunity is a real match for them and their background is a match for your job? And so it was one of those ideas that we were kind of kicking around. And honestly, we were really close to not doing it because we had a deal already papered and they literally had our area and this is where you're going to sit and you're going to build the Q&A platform for this you know, very well-funded um, Series B startup. And so we were pretty much ready to do that. But then we said, well, why don't we just put up a landing page? We don't even need to build anything. It'll just be a form. It'll explain what the idea is. And we went on GoDaddy and <laughs> found poachable.co was available. Uh, grabbed it and and uh, I tweeted out, hey, we've got this new product, check it out. And then luckily, a blogger from a Seattle tech blog um, called GeekWire, they, uh, they saw it and then kind of pinged me and said, hey, what, what's, what's going on with this, uh, this service? And they wrote a story and then a, a few hundred people signed up in a few days and then companies started contacting us. So we knew we were onto something, but at the same time, we we're supposed to sign paperwork in a few weeks and, and move out of our office. So it was an interesting kind of dilemma. How did you get your investors on board with kind of pulling out of that deal and pursuing this? Yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting conversation because luckily we had an investor call already scheduled a week before the, the sale of the company was supposed to be finalized. And the purpose of that call was to go over the legal paperwork and say, yeah, you know, your convertible notes are going to be you're going to trade those in and release this company from all obligations. In exchange for that, you're going to get equity in this new thing. And um, you know everybody can, can say they, they had a win. And so I went over that, and we had our attorney on the call. And I was like, yeah, you know, Craig says we're all good to go. We're scheduled to, to go over there and sign on this date. And uh, I said, um, there is one alternative that I do want to make you aware of, and I'm not telling you that we should do this, but I feel like we should at least consider it. And that alternative is to pursue this this new idea. And by the time, by the, at this point, this was our ninth prototype that this team had built. So I said, "Look, I know you've heard this from me before, but we think this is a cool idea. Uh, here's like 11 days of data." And um, but here's why we think it's different than other stuff we've tried before. And if we wanted to pursue it, we could, but we'd have to walk from this acquisition deal that we just spent six months kind of getting together. And oh, by the way, we have no more money, so we need we need you guys to write checks, and uh, and we're going to need to know in the next few days. Um, and if the answer is no, like we're fine, we're okay, we're okay selling the company. Um, but it was a di- very different pitch than normal. Like normally, when you pitch and you're raising money, you're kind of saying, "I believe in this. You must do this. You know, I'm I'm doing this round for sure." And this was kind of like I don't want to say reverse psychology because it was the God's honest truth. Like I wasn't anxious to sign up for another tour of duty unless I knew the investors could validate what we thought 
was a great idea, but we were a little bit leery of because we were like, guys, what if this is just idea number nine? And we've been excited about other ideas before. Um, this could just be a flash in the pan, you know, just tire kickers. We don't have a lot of data. And so then we actually said, you know what, these insiders, in a way, they can be our bullshit test. You know, they can, they, if they aren't willing to, to put 300K into this thing and not willing to walk from the sale of the company, then maybe, uh, then we shouldn't do it. And, uh, maybe we'll do it another time, but, uh, let's kind of put the ball in the, in the market's court. And so uh, we said, uh, yeah, you know, we're going to, if we can raise 300K by Monday, and I think the call is like on a Thursday, uh, we'll do it. Otherwise, we'll go to the other office and sign the papers on, on the following Friday. So when you're put in that position to raise that quickly, do you feel like that would uh, inform how you raised originally and help you speed it along, like that, that, that tide of a constraint? A lot of people say it takes three months to raise at least. Um, you obviously had investors lined up, but is there anything you learned from that that you would use to raise faster in the future? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because I think we were in a very unique scenario where we had this forcing function. We basically had like an exploding offer to buy the company. And so that that wasn't, this, I don't know that you can recreate that when you're normally raising money. And, uh, and so I, I don't think, I think this was the right approach given the circumstances. But, you know, if, when we raise the next round for Poachable, I don't think I'm going to take the, hey, it's Thursday, tell me if you're in or out by Monday. Uh, that would be pretty ballsy, but I don't think I, I don't think I could do that. Um, so, you know, I think that was the right call at the time because it was the God's honest truth. It was like, look, guys, if you're not going to recapitalize, there is no poachable. We should just do the sale of the company. And if you are going to recapitalize, you need to do it now because I'm not going to, I don't think any of us want to walk from this deal and not have the money lined up to, to, to play it out. Like the worst case scenario in my mind was, oh shoot, we burn the bridge with the acquirer and we don't recapitalize so we have no runway for poachable and we end up with, with nada. Um, so I was really kind of optimizing for, uh, I guess, mitigating that risk. And when you compare poachable to all the other ideas that you guys tried, is there anything that uh, sets it apart now or that you wish you would have done from the start? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Poachable is it's it's definitely more vitamin, uh, sorry, more aspirin than vitamin, right? Like it's it, there's a clear pain point on the employer side. Uh, if you talk to most high-growth companies, as you are, you'll probably, I'm sure you've heard, that hiring people is like one of their top challenges. And, you know, even if you raise the money and you don't have the engineers or the designer or the account managers, like you're not going to be able to hit your numbers. Um, and that's going to be a really big, uh, big kind of challenge for you. It's going to be potentially existential. And then if you're talent, uh, you talk to people about, oh, hey, you changed jobs recently. Like, how was that experience? You all, usually would get two answers. One is like, oh, it sucked. I hated it. I ended up just sort of, I knew I needed to make a change, so I just grabbed the first decent offer that came along. 
or B, they'll say, well, you know, it's completely random. I, I wasn't even looking and then I got this call and then I got an offer and then the next thing I know I'm working at that place. And both scenarios on the member side, on talent side, are really bad. I mean, obviously, the one where you're frustrated and you hate it and you just take the, the third offer you get, that's, that's not optimal and you're not happy. But I think actually even worse are those kind of um, serendipitous, uh, unplanned job changes because what you're doing is you're letting luck and chance sort of drive your career decisions versus data and planning and sort of strict criteria. And so, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't buy a blender by clicking an I'm feeling lucky button, but by letting some random recruiter that happens to catch you on the phone at the right time or send you an email at the right time, like letting that go all the way to changing jobs without doing a more thorough Kind of exhaustive review of your options is pretty um, is pretty suboptimal, and so we, I think the biggest difference for us is that well we're solving a real problem, and on the company side where people are paying us, and then on the member side we're seeing a big enough problem where the engagement that we get from our members is so strong that we know that they really care about what we're doing, and with Yably. I think there were a lot of people that liked what we did, that um, you know found us incrementally helpful. But I'll tell you what, man, when we closed Yably down, yeah, we got some some of our diehard users kind of were bummed, but most most people kind of just moved on. And uh, I think with Poachable, you know, there are companies that are hiring through us and. And there are people getting hired every few days. Um, those companies, I think, would definitely feel the difference if we weren't around. And I think similarly, you know, I was just talking to one of our members who was a engineer uh, uh, at Google, and now he's at a at a startup that was on our platform. And he said, "I don't think I would have found this company if it weren't for you guys," um, because you know he he sort of uh, was just getting emails from the recruiters that happened to find him and. Um, you know, we we think we're building something that really matters and something that uh, can be an independent company and and really change how work is done. And I don't think Yavli was on that path. I mean, I, I we said we would change how people shop, but um, you know, after two years, we we really didn't get very close to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and you know, finding the right job is so important. You spend more time there usually than you do with your family. So um, it's really great what you guys are doing. I mean, yeah, it's such a huge, huge, huge decision. And I was, I was talking to this one person who is a senior Java developer at Amazon. And he ended up going to another company. I said, oh, wow, senior Java developer from Amazon. You know, you know AWS really well as well. You must have had your, you know, your pick of the litter. How did you end up at? I think he ended up going to Hulu or something. How did you? How did you go there? And he said, "Oh, well, I had a friend that was there, and then my friend gave the recruiter my email, and then, you know, next thing I knew, I was there." And I said, "Oh, well, did you did you look at other places?" And he said, "No, uh, a uh, it's a pain in the butt uh, to do to kind of." write cover letters and resumes or do all this research. 
B, I don't have, I didn't have a lot of time because I was busy at work. I was at Amazon, which is not known for a lot of leisure time, let's say. And so, uh, you know, this, this thing came along and it seemed fine. So I, I went and I, and when you think about that, you're like, wow, that was like a very big decision. You spend to your point, Joel, uh, more time at work than you do often with your family or your significant other. And, uh, it impacts your, your health. Your state of mind, your happiness. Um, you know, sometimes I find like people spend more time researching their vacation than their next job. And I think it's not because people aren't smart, they are, but it's part of it is that the structure of how information is shared does not lend itself to optimal career decisions because it's so hard to communicate what your needs and interests are to the world without uh, having your employer get a bunch of LinkedIn notifications that you updated your profile. And so, um, you know, we feel like we're here to solve that problem. And we think it's a gigantic problem to solve. That's great. Um, Thanks so much for joining us today and, and sharing your story. Can you tell our listeners where they can keep up with you and with Poachable online? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter at Tom L. And they can follow Poachable uh, at Poachable. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And be sure to check out our app discount section where we have discounts on products that we use every day like Woo Themes, Wistia, Treehouse. Go to rocketship.fm forward slash essentials and get your discounts today. Often I wonder why I tried hoping for an end Sorrow shoulders down and trouble haunts my mind but I know the present will not last and tomorrow will be Tomorrow
Tomorrow will be kind.